Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to build strong relationships between administrators and teachers through empathy, transparency, and vulnerability. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Lorraine Connell. This episode is a bonus sixth episode in my five-part series on educational leadership. You don't have to have listened to all five to appreciate today's episode, though we do mention some of the lessons we learned from agents Anthony Turcala, Craig Randall, Marlina Valentine, Joyce Matthews, and Charles Williams. These special agents are extraordinary examples of leaders being self-aware and focusing on building relationships with students and teachers. However, our school systems are often set up so that an adversarial relationship is created between teachers and school leaders. My conversation with Lorraine Connell was focused on areas we believe that the administrator-teacher relationship could be improved so that ultimately both teachers and school leaders feel understood and supported by each other. Lorraine is a teacher and a listener who caught my attention with her willingness to publicly call out poor leadership practices that she observes in her school and district. We spoke this past week about some of the themes highlighted in the last five episodes, as well as some new issues, such as modeling risk-taking, taking sick days, and administration assignment links. And before we switch over to the recorded interview, I wanted to take a moment to wish you all a healthy and happy new year. Thank you to everyone who has been listening to Lesson Impossible's third season, which is wrapping up for the year. I will be taking a break and returning in early 2021 with more interviews with special agents and resource specialists. Thank you so much, Lorene, for joining me and the listeners on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Do you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and what your role in education is? So I started my journey in education a long time ago, uh, but it took me a while to get to where I am. So when I graduated from high school, and I know this seems like I'm going way far back, but there are some really important things that happened along the way. So when I graduated high school, I wanted to save the world. Like this is 1990s, right? So that's sort of reduce, reuse, recycle. um, That was sort of coming out. And that was my, my desire. And then through that, I realized I wasn't doing my passion. And so I went back to school to become an educator. And I had two really amazing chemistry teachers in my experience. I had a high school chemistry teacher who really opened my eyes. And then I had another one in college. And so I decided if I was going to be a teacher, I wanted to teach chemistry. And often there are people who cringe when you say I'm teaching chemistry. They're like, really? I hated chemistry. So I think for me, I really want to make sure that 
kids know that chemistry is hard, but it's not, it's not to be afraid of. I started teaching chemistry about 18 or 19 years ago. Um, my first job, I was at a, a school where it was very typical closed door, each teacher on their own. And when I was interviewing to be a chemistry teacher, there were a lot of opportunities to teach. And, um, and I went with the school that I am at currently because eight other science teachers were part of my interview team. And that community right there was so important to me. So right from the start, the school that I am still working at was a community. It felt like a family to me. It was a great place to be. I find myself 17 years later still teaching, exploring other opportunities, but seeing a real shift in leadership and loss of that community. Does that help give you some background on who I am? That's perfect. Which leads us very nicely into why I wanted to talk to you today, which is I've been running a series on educational leadership and I realized at the beginning of the series, like, I don't really know what leadership looks like in education, really. Like, when we talk about it, what is it that we're talking about? And I've had the chance to interview some really amazing educational leaders, but I wanted to to talk to a teacher who was willing to talk about the ways in which we can improve Obviously, everyone's situation is different, but there's as much as there's some bright stars who are doing amazing things in leadership, I think that there's some commonalities where perhaps our systems are not leading as well as they could. (laughs) So why don't we start with the things you've been saying? What are some of the issues you've been seeing when it comes to leadership in our system? So I think your guest, Craig, really hit home on the the idea that when we rate teachers, they play it safe. And I think what's what's really changed for me is that ability to make mistakes. So if I had Craig, he would ask me, to invite him to come in when I was taking a risk or when I was being vulnerable. And I think we as teachers, we are afraid to do that because one, what if we make a mistake? And what has recently changed is that many of our teachers are focused on doing their best and showing their best. And when we have a system where there's a monetary benefit to doing your best or rating a teacher on a four point scale or an excellent scale, then, then we lose that desire to try something new. Actually, I think about, I think it was 2013, I myself took a huge risk and I implemented a very different type of classroom environment. I did what was called the flipped classroom. And it 
it was really cool for me because as a chemistry teacher, my students struggle with the content. And if I'm direct instructing my students in class, which is the lowest level of knowledge or teaching, and then I send them off to practice at home all by themselves, then I'm not really providing my students with the structure that's going to help them survive in the hard co- content class of chemistry. So I, I switched my method of instruction where I recorded videos of myself instructing, doing that direct instruction. And I put them on YouTube and I asked my students to watch these videos at home and then come inside to the classroom and do what was typically the homework in class with me as their support system. They had their peers involved. And so I implemented this in 2013, but I didn't, I didn't have that comfort. I didn't have that trust. I didn't have that administrator that Craig seems to talk about in my building to allow that dip of innovation and that, that crossover between being like that best teacher, taking a risk, having that dip in your ability to do the right thing, and then coming out in, in what, two or three years, finally getting back to that level of instruction. I didn't have the support system. And I also made a lot of mistakes that year. I wasn't using the right terminology. You know, I would say I'm not teaching the kids when really I meant like I'm not delivering content. I'm facilitating, but I didn't have the right words yet. And because of that, I had parents who were really worried that I wasn't teaching their students um, when in fact I wasn't really teaching them. I was giving them the opportunity to facilitate their own learning. But because I didn't have that administrator that actually I feel Anthony sort of empowered when he was saying, Anthony said that he wanted to provide the support to teachers because when there's a lack of success, it's usually something the teachers are missing and he wants to be what they need. And I thought when he said that, it really brought me back to 2013 when I was in that first year of figuring things out and I didn't have it all figured out and I didn't continue to pursue it. And now here we are in the remote world and how great is it that I had that experience, but that was seven years ago. Yeah, you bring up a really good point too about that implementation dip. Yes. Like I in talking to um Adriana Ramirez when she was talking about the comprehensible input, she said something that really struck home for me, which was that as teachers we try new things and then because it's not up to our level of what we think of as our best teaching, we go back to what we're used to. And you know, she talks about I you know, taking two to three years for a new method to really start working. And we really don't have a system where two to three years is an okay amount of productive struggle. And for, especially for younger teachers who might not have secure jobs, you might not even get one to two years in the same school. So you're trying to figure it out 
along on top of a new population and new administration, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that actually brings up two thoughts for me. One is that that level of new teacher growth that needs to happen, but they're in that fear-based system of I could be let go at any time for any reason. It connects back to um, what Marlina was saying about burnout and like burnout is real. And if we're not working in a way that's truly collaborative and taking that time to really reflect on what we're learning as adults, like Joyce mentioned, you know, it takes a long time for adults to experience that deeper learning. And, and I think that that's probably pretty key to helping teachers avoid that burnout. And it also brought up the idea of if I, as a teacher, fall into that perfectionism cycle, my students don't see me making mistakes. And if my students don't see me making mistakes, that sends the message that mistakes aren't okay. And if we don't let mistakes happen, then there's no growth for anybody. And I think that that's something that I see in administration a lot is that inability to accept imperfection and their their own mistakes, which makes me as a teacher afraid to make mistakes. And it just sort of trickles down. And so who learns when and how to make mistakes if we're not letting mistakes happen? Yeah, I I wonder how much of that is just the system as a whole too, because I know that administrators are in that same kind of sandwich where they've got maybe superintendents that are afraid of taking risks or making mistakes, which makes them afraid of taking risks and making mistakes, which they then pass on to the teachers that then, you know, goes down to the, to the students. Like we're all maybe a little paralyzed with what we we can and cannot do. I'm also struck by the fact that, as I've talked about on the show before, and I interviewed her, my best friend is a vice principal. And part of her learning about being an administrator was about learning school law, which we as teachers aren't really exposed to. But when she shared with me the legal obligations, at least for her in the province that she's in, that administrators carry, I was really quite shocked at that constant recognition at the administrative level of really how much the buck stops with them a lot of the times. You know, I think it goes back to the word empathy, right? So if I, as a teacher, don't know, like you just alluded to, what my administrators are required to know and do and experience, then I'm going to continually feel like they're not doing what I need. And I think the same is true with administrators. Like they have been removed from the classroom, so they don't know what I am going through as a teacher. And so I think if there was an opportunity for us to experience the other's role how much empathy would that create? And again, create that community that is so needed in schools right now. I 
would add another word, which is transparency. Mm, Absolutely. I found that I tried in my last few years in the classroom to be really transparent about the art and profession of teaching. Because I feel sometimes that students, like we step on to the classroom, we do our lesson, and that's what students think of as our job. Or maybe they don't even think of it as our job. They just think that we naturally know all of these things and we spend, you know, 35 minutes blurting them out with these PowerPoints that somehow match what we're saying perfectly. And then, you know, there's this worksheet, which, you know, every student must do and you haven't you know, spent so much time crafting or this activity or role play or whatever. And I I wasn't being transparent because I wanted students to know how hard I was working. I was being transparent because I wanted them to understand what it is that goes into learning. You know, the fact that I read an article recently where they did a study that this is really good way for people, this age group to communicate. This is why we're doing this activity or even going as far to say, you know, I personally don't think that this is the most integral thing that you need to know, but some legislators have decided that it is. And we had a conversation, you know, about this idea of who gets to decide what we learn, who gets to decide what we teach. Do we follow those rules? Do we not? What does it mean? And just I really got a lot of positive feedback from students who said that they were able to go into other classrooms and start looking at their teachers with a more critical eye and ask themselves like, oh, I wonder why that teacher is teaching that or did this teacher make this or does the whole department, are they doing the same thing? And how much better would it be for teachers if our administrators actually said things like, I'm doing this because I've been told that I need to, though personally, I don't always agree with this. Or I understand that this form might be burdensome to you, but we need to do it so that we don't get in trouble versus pretending this form is the most amazing form ever. And of course, we're over the moon to fill it out. (laughs) I think that I think that's super key here, like transparency. I've been thinking this this past year with the remote, the change to the remote teaching, you know, I wish my administrators were more transparent about what they really expect from us and why can't they be more transparent about why we're making this decision or that decision. And I never really thought about my own transparency with my students. I mean, I think naturally I talk to them about the things that go into what we're doing, but I don't think I did it at the level that, that you're sort of talking about. And I think, yeah, it goes back to that me trying to be perfect, right? Like many teachers right now are struggling in this remote environment. It's so much different. It's so hard. It's so time consuming. And yet they don't want to have their students perceive that they can't, they can't handle it. But in reality, maybe their students are struggling. And if they don't see their student or their teacher taking the same struggles or experiencing the same struggles, then it, it doesn't feel like we're in it together. And 
I think it's so interesting because it comes back to that, you know, well, I don't see my administrators allowing themselves to be vulnerable and expressing their struggles. And so I can't express my struggles. And if I can't express my struggles, then my students can't. And it's, it's so interesting how cyclical that continues to be. And so many of the problems that we're all experiencing is because we can't be honest with each other and we can't be transparent the way that I think you, you're suggesting. And I think is really important. And I think I really will, when I go back, um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be, I'm going to be more transparent with my students. I'm going to show my vulnerability. I'm going to tell them that I'm struggling and I'm not going to be afraid because I think we can build connections that way. You also mentioned something that I'd like to speak about this idea of what are expectations. So I'm on social media a lot. Part of that is not super great for my mental health, but it's part of promoting the podcast and learning from others. And I've learned so much about teaching and gotten great ideas from it. But there was a Twitter thread recently that had teachers talking about things that they've done because they thought it was expected of them, such as one woman went into labor but finished out the day. Someone else wrote TOC or teacher on call, substitute teacher notes from their hospital bed. And this was all in response to a clip that I believe had gone viral of a teacher teaching from the hospital. And everyone was saying, oh, wow, what an amazing teacher. And my response, and I've probably, this is the comment that I've gotten the most response of from anything I've ever posted on social media was like, it's amazing that we have such resilient teachers but this shouldn't be an expectation in our profession. The fact that we perceive of ourselves as some sort of martyr and that that's being reinforced by leadership and in some case mandated by leadership, people saying that, you know, their principals called them a day after they came home from surgery and demanded that they come back into the classroom or, you know, wouldn't let them leave for the day, even though a parent had had a heart attack. That, like, that's just, what have we done to our profession that that is okay? I think there's, a correlation to that drive by teachers to do and feel that expectation that is almost linked to this health crisis that we are experiencing right now, because I know that I have 105 sick days and I've earned those in the last 10 years. If I'm earning 15 sick days a year, that tells you I have not taken very many sick days. And I would gather that I am not not sick every year. So if I'm going to go in and bring my germs because it's harder for me to stay home, am I creating super bugs? <laughs> you know, I don't feel like it's that dramatic, but like, I think if we're, we're sending our kids in kind of sniffly, we're sending ourselves in kind of sniffly, where does it end? What, what's too sick or what's not sick enough to stay home? And that, that 
at that very basic level, there's where the expectations start. I have a a text thread with a, a couple friends of mine who are also teachers. And a common thing that we do is convince the other person to call in sick. And because it's really hard to give yourself permission and you know, we ask each other the question, the same questions. So it's not like I don't know what the questions are and I could ask them to myself, but having someone ask you, what is so important that the students couldn't learn it a day later? Or what is so important that your own mental and physical health can be sacrificed? Just hearing someone else ask that, you're like, yeah, yeah, nothing's that important. And then to circle back to the administration question, you know, when you have an administrator, and again, I'm pulling from Twitter, who says, one person said that their administrator will often tell them, if you're taking Thursday off because you're sick, take Friday so that you get four full days to recover and you're fresh on Monday. So you've got that administrator in one corner, And then you've got administrators that are calling teachers at home and checking up on them to see if they're actually sick as to be worthy of taking their sick days. Like, how can we feel okay when that's the range? (laughs) That is it. And it's a huge range. And then there's benefits tied to not taking your sick days, right? So, When I retire, if I didn't take so many sick days, I can turn them in for cash and, or I'm told by my administrator, well, on average, there are 10 people out every day. So I'm really curious as to what the problem is. And instead of saying, gosh, we have 10 people out on average every day. Is there something that is wrong? Can we, can we as a faculty, can we come together and can we talk about why we have an average of 10 people out every day out of 100? Like that seems like a high number, but are you guys okay? What can I do to help you? And, and the lack of substitutes, you know, like if I don't have a quality person to come in, then I'm going to tell you, uh, if you take this day, it's really going to impact the school. It's going to like, I don't have anybody to cover for you. And, and so what, what do I do as a teacher? And I go back to that question. What is so important that I can't stay home and take care of myself? Or what if I do take that Thursday and then want the Friday, is it perceived that I'm taking long weekend or, It's a very interesting culture that we have created. And I think back to that, those years ago when I first joined this school and felt that I could take those days if I needed to, or somebody was there to support me and check in on me and make sure that I'm okay. And, or, you know, it's that one bad egg who ruins it for everybody because the administrator is afraid to confront that person because they they haven't created the environment that that both of your guests on leadership spoke about is that community of trust. If the trust is there to begin with, 
then you can have that conversation and it doesn't feel like you're attacking me or criticizing me for taking that day off. If we don't have the trust foundation to start with, there's nothing to build upon. Yeah, something that really surprised me when I when I talked to Charles Williams for the the fifth episode in the series and I asked him like what his goals were going forward and he was like self-care. And I was really almost not taken aback, but I was like, oh yeah, not only is that like a legitimate goal, that is like the goal to make sure that you are able to do the job that you're going to do. But oftentimes I think we don't see that as a legitimate professional goal, either for administrators or teachers. Like if you ask someone, how do you want to improve your teaching practice? And they said, I want to be in the school building less. I don't think you'd get a really good, like, great goal. (laughs) But if our administrators can't demonstrate self-care, then teachers don't feel like they can apply self-care. And if teachers aren't applying self-care, then how do we expect our students to be applying self-care? It's like there's so much modeling that happens and we can look from the bottom up where students can teach us, or we can look at the top down where administrators can model the behaviors that they want from our teachers. And I, I, I truly think that if an administrator wants to help its teachers avoid burnout and really grow in their lifelong goals, then, then they have to employ the modeling that they want to see with their teachers. Or, you know, I, I have a, a friend who she works in um, a lab, but her boss will come around at like 530 and just say, go home. And I'll be like, but I want to finish this. She'll be like, put it down, go home. And like, if you had a, a principal that just like popped in and was like, go home, <laughs> like how empowering would that be? Well, uh, yeah. That's so cool. Like, I just imagine like an administrator walking into my classroom and saying, hey, guys, Miss Connell's going to go home now and I'm going to help you finish this lesson. Like, tell me what you're working on. Let's do this together. And what an amazing opportunity that would be for both the students and the administrator to connect and learn and demonstrate continual growth. Yeah, or like we all notice Miss Connell has been working super hard. So I'm going to take over and she's going to take this moment to go get a coffee. And then she's going to breathe a little bit, maybe, you know, go and sit in the park for 10 minutes. And then she's going to come back to be an even better teacher. Like, how cool would that be? So cool. I would totally want to work at that school. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about the things that... I think a lot of teachers, especially when we're a wine glass deep, will will chat about. But I know that you've had some personnel and personal struggles because you're willing to talk about these issues. What gives you the courage to make this a thing that you're willing, the hill that you're willing to die on, if you will? (laughs) Oh, don't be so dramatic. I hope I don't (laughs) die on it. Let's hope. Um, I think for me, I, I'm pretty amenable to doing extra outside of the contract requests and going above and beyond like most people will. 
But when I feel there's an injustice, I just, I cannot stop. You know, I feel like somebody has to stand up and say, no, no, this isn't okay. And I think I've experienced five, six, six or seven different administrators because I've been in a variety of different schools and I've seen a lot of different abilities in how leadership takes on those roles. And I have two amazing friends. Now I have three amazing friends who are in leadership positions. And I see the reason they're so successful is because of their willingness to have empathy for others and to to let people talk. So where does my courage come from? I think my courage comes from seeing injustice and knowing that we can do better. Uh, Brene Brown talks about power and there's four types of power. And I feel like as an administrator, you can have power over, which means that there's only a finite amount of power, or you can have power to or power with and I think the successful school administrative student teacher teams have the ideas that are around the around power to or power with. And the ones that struggle and have that longevity or attrition challenges happen because of the power over. I interviewed... Laura Fitz about restorative justice. And the thing that really sticks with me was she said, there's never been kids who have left the, the restorative justice cycle. There's never been kids that just walked out and didn't find some sort of resolution, but there have been adults. So how do we make it so that you can have an administrator and a teacher find resolution, even if you don't already have a restorative justice model in your school, which is an amazing thing to do, but takes, I know, a ton of work. But how do you find resolution? What does good resolution look like? Does it mean submitting to what the person with the most power wants? Does it mean taking it to the union and then having representatives fight it out between them? Does it mean having a conversation that says like, when you said X, it made me feel Y, but then being worried that that's going to influence their evaluation of you later, the decision to hire you or to write a recommendation letter for you or whatever that is. Such a, an important question. I, I think many of those things that you uh, sort of suggested at the end, I know that whenever I've been, you know, it's therapy, you know, listening in a way that is truly listening and not I am listening to what you are saying so that I can find the error in what you are saying. 
set it straight and move on instead of really listening. And when you say, you know, what I heard you say was this. And when you said that, this is how I felt. That is true listening. And we don't have time for listening anymore. I see it more and more in my classroom, with my administrators, with my husband, our family. You know, we have to stop and and listen and reflect back what you heard. And if you have that, it goes to that, that foundation. Yeah. We're also in such high stress concentrated states that it makes it very difficult to be a good listener. Like all of these conversations are great conversations when you're in an emotionally regulated state But the way that we've created the job of teacher and I'd say administrator as well is that the job can never be done. So there's always more things and there's always more stress. And I remember getting into an interpersonal conflict with a colleague and someone from outside of the the situation, which was so small, it was about like who was teaching what with what books. And said really earnestly, like, you guys, this would have been a three-minute conversation in the hallway, but because it's June and report cards are due in the next few days, it has become a multi-day issue. And there have been tears. And I was like, oh, my God, yes. This isn't, it was like one of those moments, like, this isn't me. I'm not this person. And then there's that moment of, well, I'm not this person. Instead of assuming that my colleague is that person, maybe she's feeling the same way too. And so we were able to come together and have this conversation that started with me being like, I apologize because I am stressed. And these are the things that are riling me up. And I have not been my best in listening to what your concerns are. And by the end of it, we were like, crying and hugging and all of those things. But like, I, I had never really attributed the amount of other things to my reactions, you know, which is why air, air controllers who are doing one of the most stressful jobs in the world, they go two hours on two hours off. But we don't get off. And I'm not saying that being a teacher is like an air traffic controller at all, but I think that there is a lot of stress and we probably deserve a couple hours off every once in a while to process that stress. Yeah. It's the perception. There's so many misperceptions of being a teacher that we as teachers perpetuate and I think of that description of that story and I can, I can put myself in that situation without too much effort. I I can walk down that hallway and feel those emotions with you because it's so easily done. And when you don't have an administration that is unifying and collaborative as teachers, we turn on each other. And, and that is where I am right now. I see a lot of 
individuality and isolation in a building that didn't embody that when I walked in 17 years ago. And you mentioned that the the goal of your podcast is to make people feel less alone. And I have never felt so alone in my building as I do right now. And it's not because I don't see my colleagues every day. It's because we have stopped caring for each other because we don't have somebody bringing us together and unifying us and recognizing that the morale in the school is the lowest it's ever been because they don't have the history. And if you don't have the history in my school or in the state that I live, the average tenure for a principal in a school is 2.3 years. (laughs) That's low and that's the average. Well, you, you don't make any change, substantial change in a community until about year five. You know, we could think of the teacher who doesn't perfect themselves until they've done it three years in a row. As an administrator, it takes five years to make any sort of substantial change. And if you are the third principal in a line of 2.3 years, you don't have a whole lot of options in that community. The community is is broken. I mean, if there has not been a consistent administration at a school as principal number three or four, you know you're walking into a time bomb. And so holding somebody in place, even if they're not perfect, there's some value but from the perspective of a teacher, how, how do you build that confidence again in an administration that has turned over and turned over and all of your trusted administrative type teachers have gone on to be administrators other places? So I think the system has a lot of changes to be made in order to change the challenges we have with administration in order to change the challenges that we have with truly educating people and not just putting them in a box and making them do the same thing as everybody else did. And I don't, change is hard. So that seems like a great place to wrap up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's such a bad place to wrap up. We need to end on some hope. I don't know. Maybe COVID is the answer, right? Like we have to, we're going to someday be back in schools mm, differently, but similarly. So what if we take this opportunity and really think about what we're doing in our classrooms? And I think that there's a lot of hope in, you know, there are the administrators, like those that I featured on the series, but also just out there doing the work that are truly amazing. And like with outside perception of teachers, where everyone thinks of the worst one, most administrators are doing a good job. Some are doing incredible jobs, 
and some are just doing good jobs. And that's, that's good. Pretty good. Yeah. Well, and there, and there's the leaders that are just, you know, average and are not bringing you up or bringing you down. And we don't write reviews about the things that are just okay. Right. So, so we, we accentuate those extraordinary leaders and then we see that our leader maybe isn't that extraordinary. And we, we do some reflection on, Hey, so I think it it is about who do we set as the ideal, right? Who is the ideal? What is the ideal? And when they're not the ideal, it doesn't mean they're bad. Yeah. And that's the message we need to give to each other too. Like when we're striving for that ideal and we're not taking sick days and we're not paying attention to our personal needs, being a perfectly good teacher still creates an educated populace. That is a great place to end. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for chatting with me today. This was wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.